The views expressed in this program are those of the participants. I understood my role was to negotiate free trade agreements with anyone that would listen, but nobody seems to have the slightest interest in either me or my whale oil. <laughs> well, <clears throat> there is a lack of confidence in us, Thomas. In the whale oil, perhaps, but in the country as a whole. Do they think that we will tire of independence? That our nation is uh, ephemeral? My experience here has shown uh, that American affairs are of very little consequence to anyone in Europe. And as long as they are dealing with 13 separate states, well, they can afford to procrastinate. Ah! Uh, Thomas, allow me to present my wife. Mrs. Adams is already well known to me. Your wisdom and your passion for your country are said to inform your husband's every decision. <laughs> you do me more credit than I deserve, sir. Come. Tell me, Mr. Jefferson, are you situated in an equally grand manner? Oh, certainly. It's a measure of our immense significance in the French court, where the question is not how well qualified are we for office, but how many domestics do we retain? The British ambassador has 50, the Spanish ambassador has 75. We consider ourselves quite impoverished. We have to make do with fewer than 20. I'm sorry, my dear. Perhaps if we had more servants, you would be more successful in your negotiations. <laughs> a diplomatic magician. <laughs> At present, I see scarcely any opportunity of doing anything for the American public worth the expense of maintaining us in. Welcome, everyone. It is Thursday, January 26th, 2017. I'm Bob Metz. And I'm Robert Vaughn. And this is Just Right, broadcasting around the world and online. Join us for an hour of discussion that's not right-wing... It's just right. Fade into color, color into black and white. Under the bedclothes, everything will be alright. Well, Robert, I know that you'll be kicking off the show today with your thoughts and reflections on the Trump inauguration. Well, uh, did you see the inauguration, Bob? I did, just today, in fact. Yeah? <laughs> I heard it on the radio when it was live, though. Oh, did you? No, yeah. I was working, so I had to look at it later on. From YouTube, and I and I downloaded the ABC uh, broadcast, eight hours long, and the Bloomberg Bloomberg Politics broadcast. And going through both of them, I was absolutely astounded by one thing. I thought it was irreverent, to use a word, or disrespectful. Bloomberg, the commentators, wouldn't shut up. Really? They kept talking over speeches, over prayers. It was amazing that they even be quiet for just Trump's speech and Obama's speech. And ABC, the exact opposite. Not one single solitary word of comment. It was as if they were turning their back on the entire affair. I've never seen the like. Yeah, I don't. I think we're going to see a lot more of what you've never seen the like of. <laughs> <laughs> but for my focus in the second half of our show today, I'll be continuing the discussion that we somewhat inadvertently got started last week on on money and on capitalism and politics. 
because the feedback on that topic was a bit unexpected and really worthy of consideration. I got some questions that, that were unusual. Let's put it that way. But before we get underway, let's remind our listeners that they can write us at feedback at justrightmedia.org, subscribe to Just Right on iTunes, hear us on WBCQ and Channel 292 Shortwave, visit us at www.justrightmedia.org, where you can access all of Just Right's social media links, including Twitter, Facebook, YouTube, and, of course, all of our past broadcasts. Well, Bob, it's official. Donald Trump is now POTUS 45. Are we still here? (laughs) (laughs) The sky hasn't fallen. And, you know, I really love the pomp and circumstance surrounding such occasions. I watch the uh, anything to do with royalty. I, I really enjoy um, even the presidential royalty. And if Americans think that they don't have a royal family now, um, they're, they're, they're deluding themselves. They've always had, always had royal families. They were just elected. That's it. It's total royalty. They venerate themselves to the royalty, just as if King George was still on the throne. So... <laughs> <laughs> But I want to concentrate right now on the inaugural speech of Donald Trump and sort of take it apart. I'll take it apart line by line, or at least most of it, in the second quarter after the break. But the first part, I want to just talk about it in generalities. You know, the inaugural address of a president of the United States is something that's become quite precious to Americans. It's a signature piece of writing looked upon as insight into the mind of the man. It's a declaration of the State of the Union at the same time and a vague blueprint for the next four years. It's not an occasion for particulars. It's an occasion for generalities and direction. The language of an inaugural address is also a reflection of the character of the people of the United States, I think. It's, it's most certainly has waned um, in eloquence from the once lyrical and poetic prose of the founding fathers. That's for sure. <laughs> to the more direct and guttural um, speeches of a Barack Obama or a Donald Trump. Uh, now, the first two sentences of the very first inaugural address by George Washington in 1789 reveal a, a humility and a reluctance to serve by a man who had already given so much to secure the freedom of his nation. But even more, it reveals a high level of intellect in its style. Here's the first two sentences of the very first inaugural address. Among the vicissitudes incident to life, no event could have filled me with greater anxieties than that of which the notification was transmitted by your order and received on the 14th day of the present month. On the one hand... I was summoned by my country, whose voice I can never hear but with veneration and love, from a retreat which I had chosen with the fondest predilection, and in my flattering hopes, with an immutable decision as the asylum of my declining years. A retreat which was rendered every day more necessary, as well as more dear to me, by the addition of habit to inclination, and of frequent interruptions in my health to the gradual waste committed on it by time." George Washington. (laughs) (laughs) Love it. I love the language. I love the lyric nature of it. It's the eloquence um, nature of such a speech, uh, but it has gradually faded, that kind of eloquence. Today, the presidents speak in plain language, directed more to the people of the land, rather than the assembled intelligentsia in Congress, which, by the way, was really the audience of Washington and and subsequent early presidents. Mm -hmm. Uh, In almost every inaugural address, the president has commented on both the virtues and flaws of his country. 
He laid it bare. Donald Trump is no exception to that precedent set down by John Adams, the second president who spoke of states' rights, which, by the way, is taken to mean slavery, and the influence of foreign powers in the election. This is what John Adams had to say. POTUS number two. We should ever lose sight of the danger to our liberties if anything partial or extraneous should infect the purity of our free, fair, virtuous, and independent elections. If an election is to be determined by a majority of a single vote, and that can be procured by a party through artifice or corruption, the government may be the choice of a party for its own ends, not of the nation for the national good. If that solitary suffrage can be obtained by foreign nations, by flattery or menaces, by fraud or violence, by terror, intrigue, venality, the government may not be the choice of the American people, but of foreign nations. It may be foreign nations who govern us, and not we, the people who govern ourselves. And candid men will acknowledge that in such cases, choice would have little advantage to boast of over lot or chance. Now, that was John Adams. Could Donald Trump be echoing the ghost of John Adams when he speaks of building a wall on the southern border or preventing the immigration of Muslims until we figure out what's going on? Mm -hmm. Because part of the problem that Trump identified with immigration, and this was talked about before in one of our shows, where we talked about um, Leonard Peikoff mentioning that Barack Obama is landing in Mexicans specifically because they vote left. Of course. They vote Democrat. It was a way of trying to influence the election. And Trump could be channeling Adams. The media and Trump's opponents have suggested that his inaugural address was particularly dark. And by dark, they're suggesting that he was deriding the country for its supposed problems. Problems which do not exist in the minds of the opponents, but only exist as paper tigers in the mind of Trump and his supporters. Of course, the left is blind, blind to history and to facts. They are willfully blind. Mm -hmm. This is from the inaugural speech of John Quincy Adams in 1825. And, of course, John Quincy Adams was John Adams' son. From evil, physical, moral, and political, it is not our claim to be exempt. We have suffered sometimes by the visitation of heaven through disease, often by the wrongs and injustice of other nations, even to the extremities of war, and lastly, by dissensions among ourselves, dissensions perhaps inseparable from the enjoyment of freedom, but which have more than once appeared to threaten the dissolution of the Union, and with it the overthrow of all the enjoyments of our uh, present lot and all our earthly hopes of the future. The causes of these dissensions have been various, founded upon differences of speculations in the theory of republican government, upon conflicting views of policy in our relations with foreign nations, upon jealousies of partial and sectional interests, aggravated by prejudices and prepossessions (laughs) which strangers to each other are ever apt to entertain. That sounds so familiar. (laughs) That sounds so familiar. Here he is in 1825 talking about the divisions among the population of the United States. I take particularly uh, particular delight, by the way, in John Quincy Adams' notion that dissension is inseparable from the enjoyment of freedom. Absolutely. Only in a free country can you dissent the way that we do and the Americans do. Since that time, it's difficult to find an address by 
any president which does not lay bare the disunity and dissent of the American people. So for the press and the left to suggest that Donald Trump is any different than practically every president before him is disingenuous. They're willfully blind. They probably never even read they don't you know, even an, know. an inaugural address yeah. from anybody other than Obama. It was like like listening to Trump talk about building walls to, to Mexico, and Bill Clinton, when he was president, was saying the same things to Congress, mm-hmm. almost verbatim. We played it on our show. Yep. Nobody yep. reacted. Oh, yeah, that's normal. You know, by the way, one of the darkest, if I were to use their adjective, one of the darkest inaugural speeches was actually given by Barack Hussein Obama. This is what he had to say in 2009. That we are in the midst of crisis is now well understood. Our nation is at war against a far-reaching network of violence and hatred. Our economy is badly weakened, a consequence of greed and irresponsibility on the part of some, but also our collective failure to make hard choices and prepare the nation for a new age. Homes have been lost, jobs shed, businesses shuttered, Our health care is too costly. Our schools fail too many. And each day brings further evidence that the the ways we use energy strengthen our adversaries and threaten our planet. (laughs) Wow. Wow. Armageddon. (laughs) What did Trump say that was any darker than what Obama said? The hypocrisy. It's pretty grim, but no less grim than than any other really um, modern-day president had to say about well, especially the state the, of the union. Especially when the president is coming in after another president, because that's off, often the reason he's there, oh. to, to fix what the previous president did. So he has to position himself that way. Obama's grim tidings are also no less dark than when Trump said this. Mothers and children trapped in poverty in our inner cities, rusted out factories, scattered like tombstones across the landscape of our nation. An education system flush with cash, but which leaves our young and beautiful students deprived of knowledge. And the crime and gangs and drugs that have stolen too many lives and robbed our country of so much unrealized potential. This American carnage stops right here and stops right now. That's Trump. Dark, just as dark as Obama. And, and by the way, I think it's more lyrical, much more poetic, you know, scattered like tombstones. <laughs> American <laughs> carnage. Sounds great. <laughs> it seems that every president has maligned the efforts of every immediately preceding president. Trump is simply following a tradition laid down over 200 years before him. He is reminding the people of the reason they elected him and reiterating his resolve to fix the problems left by his predecessors. Obama did the same thing. In that sense, his inaugural speech was presidential. The fact that it is highly unlikely that he will succeed in fixing the problems he mentions is also presidential. The United States of America. The United States of America have appointed me Minister Plenipotentiary to Your Majesty. I think myself more fortunate than all of my fellow citizens in having the the distinguishing honor to be the first to stand in Your Majesty's presence in a diplomatic character. I shall esteem myself the happiest 
of men if I can be instrumental in restoring the confidence and affection, or in better words, the good old nature and the good old humor between peoples who, though separated by an ocean and under different governments, have the same language, similar religion, and kindred blood. I beg your majesty's permission to add that though I have been before entrusted by my country It was never in my whole life in a manner more agreeable to myself. The circumstances of this audience are so extraordinary language you have now held is so extremely proper and the feelings you have discovered so justly adapted to the occasion that I not only receive with pleasure the assurance of the friendly disposition of the United States but that I am very glad that the choice has fallen on you to be their minister. I will be very frank with you. I was the last to consent to separation. But the separation having been made and having become inevitable, I have always said, as I say now, that I would be the first to meet the friendship of the United States as an independent power. Thank you, Your Majesty. Those are clips, by the way, from the miniseries John Adams, a must-see. An absolute masterpiece. It, it is so compelling, and, and, and it just freezes me in front of the screen any time I watch it. I can't walk away. It's so well done. Yeah. Let's go through Trump's speech, section by section, skipping the greetings, of course, which, um, in which he is gracious to the Obamas for making their help in the transition. Mm-hmm, sure. This is the standard fill-in-the-name here <laughs> nod to his predecessor, no matter how much he despised that person's policies, or perhaps even the person, I don't know. But Of course, the remainder of his speech, um, he is backhandedly calling Obama the great destroyer. <laughs> you know, but Obama, he was gracious to the Bushes, and the Bushes were gracious to the Clintons, even though the Clintons stole many of the furnishings from the White House when they left. It's the standard handoff salute to the guy who he maligned while on the campaign trail. Done. Okay. This is from his inaugural address. Quote, Today's ceremony, however, has very special meaning because today we are not merely transferring power from one administration to the other or from one party to another, but we're transferring power from Washington, D.C. and giving it back to you, the American people. For too long, 
A small group in our nation's capital has reaped the rewards of government while the people have borne the cost, unquote. Now, Trump here is, ta- is talking to his key demographics, obviously. The Washington outsiders from both sides of the aisle. The overarching theme of his presidential campaign was that Hillary was corrupt and Washington was corrupt. He said that as a businessman, having been part of that cronyism himself, he was in a unique position as a candidate to know firsthand the degree to which Washington is corrupt. So that's a nod to his campaign strategy, his overarching theme of Washington and the drain the swamp. To continue, Washington flourished, but the people did not share in its wealth, he says. Trump's greatest area of weakness is that he does not understand wealth. He doesn't understand it. Uh, No, let me rephrase that. He understands wealth quite well. (laughs) (laughs) He doesn't understand wealth creation as much as people might think. He certainly understands wealth. To him, he sees only one side of the equation. I will get into this a little later, but for now I'll interpret this statement to mean not that people did not share in Washington's wealth, but that crony businessmen and politicians like the Clintons were the recipients of government largesse. I think that's what he really means there. If this is what he means, then I'd agree with him. People did not share in the wealth. By the way, the wealth was theirs to begin with. Trump, politicians prospered, but the jobs left and the factories closed. The establishment protected itself, but not the citizens of our country. Now, this may sound correct, but it's far too vague. Politicians prospered. Of course they did, but jobs come and go on a daily basis every day, in most part due to the ever-changing challenges facing businesses, due to the nature of business. That's what happened. People think of profit and loss, but they never think of the loss part of that equation. They only think of profit. Businesses lose every day. That's right. I'm actually addressing some of that in, Mm. in the second half of the show. Factories close all the time as new products are developed and old ones become forgotten. It's called progress. Now, the difference, of course, is Did the challenges that forced businesses to close come from the natural business dealings or did it come from the hand of government? That's the difference. You know, there's no no doubt that factories close because of offshore labor is cheaper. That's true. But in Trump's zero-sum understanding of wealth creation, he neglects to acknowledge that this made products cheaper for Americans and that cheaper goods mean a higher standard of living. Here's another thing from Trump. You came by the tens of millions to become part of a historic movement, the likes of which the world has never seen before. You know, he may be right on that point. For many years, many, many years, my lifetime, I would suggest, the United States was poised to continue in an ever-ending downward spiral towards cronyism and globalism. I saw it every single administration. Deeper and deeper, they dug the hole. And at every level of government, too, I might add. Yes. (laughs) They were building the George Soros Society. Trump's election and his movement, his election was indeed a movement which, for the most part, rejected the call to globalize and rejected the corruption they saw as a permanent fixture in Washington. So I think he's right there. The world has never seen the like before, at least not in my lifetime. At the center of this movement, Trump says, is a crucial conviction that a nation exists to serve its citizens. Wow, I like that statement. This one statement is perhaps the best line of Trump's speech. This is in direct opposition to John F. Kennedy's line 
which I always picture being said by Yoda. (laughs) Ask not what your country can do for you. Ask what you can do for your country. That sappy appeal to sacrifice has helped ruin the relationship the American citizen once had to its government. The nation's government should be thought of as a servant to its citizens. Citizens should expect service from its government and not the other way around. The government is there to protect people's individual rights. That's its job. It is there to serve the people. Finally, a president has reversed JFK's notion of sacrifice. About time, too. It should be noted, however, that to a collectivist, one might think that Trump is saying that Washington should be your sugar daddy and not the protector of your individual rights as it should be. This may be the case, but I don't think that's what Trump is saying, just judging by what I've heard the man say before. Now, here comes the line the leftists have latched onto as being dark, other than the one I've already said. Trump again. For many decades, we've enriched foreign industry at the expense of American industry. You know, I don't think that's true. The nature of all trade is, by its nature, win-win. No one gets into a trade agreement or, or negotiates a trade unless there's something for them to benefit from. No consumer or businessman enters into trade without a gain. On the issue of trade, I think Trump is dead wrong. And this is throughout his entire speech and his campaign. Quote, subsidized the armies of other countries while allowing for the very sad depletion of our military. We've defended other nations' borders while refusing to to defend our own. Unquote. You know, I think the U.S. has done a splendid job in defending its own borders. (laughs) They're still the same borders as they've always been. You know, as far as if he's talking militarily. And he fails to remember that America, after the Second World War, saw strategic value in maintaining bases in Europe, of propping up Europe's decimated militaries at the time, and the early warning protection systems in Canada. Remember the dew line? Oh, yeah. You know, it, it, it wouldn't be far off the mark, however, to suggest that Canada and other allied countries today do not pull their weight militarily. I agree with him there. Here's Trump again. And spend trillions of dollars overseas while America's infrastructure has fallen into disrepair and decay. Unquote. Now, I don't know if American infrastructure is necessarily bad, but Trump is correct on the futility of foreign aid. Just hours before he took the oath of office, this, by the way, Bob, is, is totally disgusting, Hours, on the same day, hours before he took the oath of office, John Kerry took the opportunity to give the Palestinians $221 million. No kidding. Uh, A last robbing of the piggy bank to support the anti-Semitic terrorists, which Obama and Kerry have shared an ideology with for the last eight years. Um, Here's Trump again in his inauguration address. One by one, the factories shuttered and left our shores with not even a thought about the millions upon millions of American workers left behind. Now, thinking of the interest of factory workers, which is a group, and not consumers, which, by the way, is everyone, or the factory owner, which is an individual or a group of individuals, is the common focus of all collectivists. They're thinking about groups, workers, Trump is no exception. He's a collectivist. His focus should be on all Americans as individuals, including multi-billionaire factory owners. They have a right to hire whomever they wish. All that's true, but it won't buy him votes. 
you got it. You got it. That's the disgusting nature of a democracy sometimes. Trump, the wealth of our middle class has been ripped from their homes and then redistributed across the entire world. Yes and no. Uh, Again, Trump fails to understand basic economics. When an American buys a product from overseas using American dollars, that dollar will have to return to America. You know, it's just as if I wrote a check and gave it to you, Bob. At some point, you're going to have to cash that check. Balance of trade is only a problem if all Americans, all of of America's foreign creditors, call their loans at the exact same time. That'll be a problem. Now, of course, he's right in the fact that the wealth of the middle class has been ripped from their homes and then redistributed across the world. One example I just gave you, $221 million to the Palestinians. Trump continues, from this moment on, it's going to be America first. Every decision on trade, on taxes, on immigration, on foreign affairs will be made to benefit American workers and American families, unquote. Now, Trump's American first uh, slogan is proper for issues of foreign affairs. I agree, but it's not necessarily proper for issues on trade. It may be proper for some issues of immigration, but Trump has always correctly qualified his remarks on immigration, um, so in that regard, he may be correct to tie his America First slogan, uh, slogan to, to administration uh, to immigration. Trump, we will follow two simple rules, buy American and hire American, unquote. Let me put this as clearly as I can. The concept of buy American is un-American. America was built on the notion that each individual should be free to trade with whomever he wishes and hire whomever he wishes in order to prosper as an individual. To restrict trade and hiring to within one's borders is a restriction on an individual's freedom and liberty and detrimental to every American as a consumer and a worker. Here's Trump again. We will reinforce old alliances and form new ones and unite the civilized world against radical Islamic terrorism, which we will eradicate completely from the face of the earth, unquote. Finally, an American president is not afraid to use the word Islamic when referring to terrorism. Obama forbade federal law enforcement and the military from referring to terrorism as Islamic and as a result, help perpetuate that scourge on civilization. This one sentiment alone by Trump is enough for him to get my support, even in the face of all his mistakes, just as it was with my support for the Harper Conservatives a few years ago. All in all, Trump's speech was typically presidential in its appeal to patriotism, its chastisement of previous administrations, and its indication of the perennial problems which faces all collectivist nations. I have hope, however, that the Trump administration will be beneficial to Americans and the rest of the world. But I've been disappointed before. There is an opinion among some people, Mr. Adams, that you are not the most attached of all your countrymen to the manners of France. Uh, Yes, well, I avow to your majesty uh, that I have no attachment uh, to any country but my own. An honest man will never have any other. Killing. 
Are you capable of it? Because if you are, I will make you rich. Goldman just poached Consolidated's pension account from us this morning. So I am offering a bounty meal. A million dollars to the first son of a bitch at this table to poach an account back from Goldman. It's open season, guys. Open hunting season. I want you to make them bleed. Detective Beckett, could we have a word, please? I told you SEC pricks to talk to my lawyer. And that is how capitalists get a bad rap. You're listening to Just Right, broadcasting around the world and online. Thanks to all our financial supporters who have made it possible for us to continue our journey in the right direction. Everyone in the world is able to share our timeless past broadcasts, all archived for everyone's listening pleasure at www.justrightmedia.org. So we began our conversation last week on the whole issue of money and capitalism. And so I'll begin with John B., who wrote to us on Facebook, posted on Facebook, quote, in order to be successful, capitalism is dependent on constant growth. Surely there's a finite limit to how far any economic system can continue to grow. And that was his comment. And I thought it was a good point to make. Capitalism is a condition. It's not a thing. There are, however, limits to production and consumption. Limits that are determined by the law of supply and demand, which is an eternal process that has no end as long as human beings must have clothing, food, shelter, and technology to survive. And bear in mind that capitalism is also the system of profit and loss, just as you were saying earlier in the first half of the show, Robert, with the loss component always being conveniently ignored in the discussion. Economic failure is also a component of capitalism, so long as that failure was caused by market forces and not by government interventions. When politicians intervene to financially rescue failing industries, they're actually preventing the economic process from performing a very necessary function, a contraction in growth where it is no longer necessary or viable. Then we hear from Lauren G., who wrote, The Scandinavian countries seem to have found a combination that is infinitely better to promote growth, happiness, family values, and freedom. Your system seems to promote the haves and leaves the have-nots to figure it out for themselves. Well, you know, Ayn Rand once commented that when people speak of the haves and the have-nots, that it was freedom that they either have or have not. The evidence is simply overwhelming, and you can't deny it. Then Rob L. writes, You also need to realize that most people in those supposed top countries have small economies. You should also look at the businesses there. Rob's observation that most of the people in the top countries have small economies I found intriguing. Just ran across a piece in the National Post with the heading, Why Russia Runs the World, written by Tristan Hopper on January 17th, and the subheader read, Kremlin Dominating Foreign Affairs Despite Stagnation. And to give you a quick overview of the point that the writer was trying to make, I'll just quote the following points from that article. Quote, Russia makes less money per year than Canada. For 2016, its $1.3 trillion GDP was roughly on par with Australia, a country with one-sixth of the population and less than half the square footage. The country's 147 million population isn't all that impressive either. Nigeria, Bangladesh, and Brazil all have more citizens. Why is a Eurasian economic basket case running the world now? 
Russia's military spending is only one-tenth that of the United States. It has fewer military personnel than India, and the smoke-billowing flagship of the Russian Navy has to be followed everywhere by a tug in case it breaks down. <laughs> Does that sound real to you? I did not know any of these things. Yeah. Of course, Russia is one of only two countries that can still annihilate all life on the planet Earth. Russia has the world's largest nuclear stockpile with 7,300 weapons, according to Plowshares Fund, end quote. So you get the general idea. But the point to be made is that economy is not a measure of power, nor is, is it a measure of population, nor is it a measure of geography. It's about the politics, which in turn is about the moral base on which that political system operates. And despite its acknowledged military power, Russia, under socialist communist rule, cannot possibly compete in the creation of wealth with the capital West to the degree that the West still abides by free market principles. So the contention that we, quote, also need to realize that most people in those countries have small economies, end quote, is not a cause and effect relationship, it is, if it's even true. Given the smaller size of the Russian economy relative to America or Canada's, Russians should be wealthier than the average North American if that theory holds true. It ain't so. Apples and oranges. Because size doesn't matter. Freedom does. Martin B., the love of money is the root of all good. L-O-L. I just commented, remember, as stressed repeatedly in our broadcast, when it comes to money, it's the love of earning money that's the root of all good. It is the love of having or stealing money without earning it that is the evil. Wanting something for nothing is the root of all evil. Ian C. writes, Having read Ayn Rand, her novels are worse than Dan Brown, and she died on welfare. Great role model. <laughs> now, this is the same Ian C. we cited on last week's show. So, uh, hello again, Ian. <laughs> Ayn Rand never presented herself as a role model for anyone. She was not a politician, lobbyist, or a business tycoon. She was a writer and novelist, and to that extent was one of the world's most successful. Whether she died poor or wealthy, her ideas stand on their own, and the status of her wealth when she wrote them, or before she wrote them, or after she wrote them, is irrelevant. Nevertheless, your contention that Rand died on welfare is outrageously false. She was quite well off when she passed away, and her legacies, including the sales of her books and the Ayn Rand Institute, continue to raise millions to this day. We have spoken to many who knew Rand directly, and this fiction, that she died on welfare, is one of the great urban myths. It's an outright lie that the left thrives on in the false hopes of countering her arguments by attacking the messenger. Rand passed away quite wealthy, and her books continue to be bestsellers to this very day. Then Michael J. writes, Nice propaganda. Tell the ghosts of the 8 million who were murdered in the Congo to supply Michelin and Dunlap with rubber how capitalism improved their lives. It appears that Michael is confusing business activity and capitalists, which exist in all countries, usually with the direction and help of local governments making the business practice either crony or fascist, with capitalism the condition of economic freedom, which has never existed in the Congo. And then there's David D.R. Get a better education. Fascism, a political philosophy, movement, or regime, as of the fascisti, that exalts nation and often race above the individual and stands for a centralized autocratic government headed by a dictatorial leader, severe economic and social regimentation, and forcible suppression of opposition. No wonder you're so out of touch. You can't even define the words, he tells us. <laughs> 
And David, your comment is one we've heard many times before, including the ironic, quote, get a better education advice. Just right is all about epistemology, the knowledge of knowledge, and how to know when you're right. Definitions as symbols of concepts are the key component of epistemology. There are objective rules to concept formation and therefore to the definition, definitions rather, which define those concepts. The proper, def, uh, or sorry, the popular definition of fascism that has been cited, while listing a few valid features of fascism, does not strike at the essential characteristics of fascism that distinguish it from any other forms of tyranny. The symptoms that he listed apply equally to communism, to socialism, and a host of other tyrannies, but not to freedom or capitalism. So again, we invite you to check out Just Right 478, November 10th of last year, where in the third quarter of the broadcast, we addressed all of the common gross misunderstandings about fascism, in particular, the false belief that fascism is a phenomenon of the extreme right. I shouldn't have let you do it, no matter how much money you paid me. I already explained that, Cecile. The money doesn't matter. You would have let us anyway, because what we hope to discover may save more than one person's life. All right, then, but I just feel so mercenary taking money for it. Well, uh, listen, I mean, if it really bothers you that much. You know something, Mr. Solo? I think people, well, some people anyway, have forgotten what money's really for. I mean, well, they think it's to, to buy fancy furniture and, and swimming pools or, or just to keep up with the Joneses. Well, there are some people who, who need money for, for more basic things. Like, like we need money for, for food and, and to have a roof over our head and, and to buy clothes. I guess you can't understand that. No, as hard as it may be for you to believe, I can understand that. For that, you should be getting your answers gift-wrapped. Well, money works a lot faster than arguing with her. I don't want to have any more to do with either one of you. Cecile, uh, perhaps... If you help me, I may be able to help you. And Niels. And this time it's worth $1,000. Just one little telephone call. $1,000. so much fun having money. You know what I'm going to do? No, what are you going to do? I mean, well, just for me, just for myself, I'm going to get somebody to take care of Niels one evening, and, and I'm going to one of those, you know, someplace like... I'll bet you go to those rich restaurants all the time, don't you? Oh, you mean places like... Uh... Yeah. I mean, the way you throw money around. Oh, gosh, just think candelabras and, and waiters and, 
And maybe an orchestra. Oh my gosh. What's wrong? Oh my gosh, well, I just can't do it. I mean, well, if I do that, then then I have to buy clothes and not only clothes, but well, well shoes and and everything. I didn't know having money was so much trouble. Those are the kind of money troubles we'd all like to have, aren't they? But let's continue our conversation on capitalism and money and all the rest with David D. R., who wrote, Capitalism, unrestrained, is fascism. Here we go again. The best nations on the planet are all social democracies. The ten best nations for business are social democracies. There's nothing moral about letting the most vulnerable among us die for a lack of money, end quote. Since fascism is by definition state control of private property, thought, expression, and economic exchange, and since capitalism is, by definition, a separation of the state from economics, to say that capitalism is fascism is pure contradiction and utterly meaningless. But listen to, listen to that word, unrestrained capitalism. Let's think about that term for a minute. Freedom requires no restraints. The restraints are already part of that freedom. Under freedom and capitalism, every individual is already restrained from using force against the other by law. That's the concept of individual rights. And the prohibition of the use of force in human relationships is the ruling principle. The right to use force in self-defense is a corollary of that principle. By calling for freedom and capitalism to be restrained, one is literally asking for the prohibition on the use of force to be removed so that individuals will be helpless against anyone who would rob them of their earnings. That's how non-capitalist jurisdictions operate, both in theory and practice. To suggest that there, quote, is nothing morally wrong, or nothing moral about letting the most vulnerable among us die for lack of money, end quote, as if this has something to do with capitalism, that's a non sequitur. However, the condition described has been observed many times throughout history under socialist regimes. And Robert, as you know, I've told the story how my own grandfather was not only allowed to die under Russia's rule of the Ukraine, but was forced to die by starvation following World War II, thanks to the inability of socialism and communism to produce enough food for everyone, which is obviously still the case today from what we just heard about the Soviet Union now. The millions upon millions who have been forced to die under non-capitalist slave regimes appear to carry no weight in the minds of those who cite capitalism as the villain. Personally, I see nothing moral in that omission. Then there's Stephen S., who writes, I don't agree with your assertion that capitalism is a moral or political system. Capitalism, in my view, is a strictly economic system, which can be moderated by moral decisions by individuals or societies, end quote. So there he is in one sentence contradicting himself, and, and I pointed out to him, I said, look, it, in saying that an economic system can be moderated by morality, beware that you're disagreeing with your own assertion while expressing a universal truth, that every political system and every economic system is based on a set of moral principles. Under capitalism, the moral standard is consent. Under all other economic systems, communism, socialism, fascism, etc., the moral standard obviates consent to varying degrees. Even if economics could be isolated from morality and politics, what is economics except about trade and exchange? 
Since morality concerns human activity and human relationships, here's the moral and political dimension. Should that trade be voluntary or should it be forced? Morality ends where a gun begins, as Ayn Rand so famously quipped. Our position is that the use of force to gain the unearned is demonstrably immoral and causes untold suffering and hardship, and that's why we support freedom and capitalism. Then Stephen S. writes back. He goes, whoa, I'm getting a bit confused by some of these very definitions as though they must be pure without shades or degrees. I'm also seeing a blurring of political and economic models. Fascism, for instance, has had many different definitions and has taken different forms in different places under various regimes. Fascism in its various forms generally is considered an authoritative regime where ownership and control of private property and the means of economic production is owned by the state for the benefit of all. They tend to be very nationalistic and individualism and dissent are restricted, end quote. And then he, then he does a second post, get this, quote, Good Lord, I'm getting lost in my own thoughts here. Socialism and communism may or may not be democratic or authoritarian. E economy and markets are generally centrally regulated. And that's the end of that post. And then he writes another post. Now that I've bored us all to tears trying to make something intelligible, I'm too tired to remember what the original conversation was about. <laughs> Stephen, we, we really enjoyed your posts, and you actually brought up a couple of very good issues, as exhausting as it might have been. First of all, definitions are pure, quote-unquote, to use your, your word, without shades or degrees, unless, of course, a shade or a degree is part of the definition. <laughs> You can't have your definition cake and eat it, too. We already have a way to shade or moderate a defined word. It's called an adjective. But stealing a penny is as immoral as stealing a million dollars. The degree you talk about is only in the relative harm done, not in the principle that stealing is the right thing to do in one case and a wrong thing to do in the other, if all you're taking is a small amount. And with regard to the blurring of political and economic models, I would, I would suggest, Stephen, that this may not be what you are experiencing. What you might be hearing for the first time is that someone is suggesting that both politics and economics are based on morality. The black and white choice is this. Are the relationships between individuals and groups in society to be based on consent or not? The idea of consent is a moral principle. After all, we all know sex without consent is rape. Consensual sex is fun and not criminal, no matter how messy it might get. <laughs> okay? Everyone gets that. Why is this not the standard for all human interactions, or would that be too blurring? Every human activity and relationship has a moral basis, but that has nothing to do with, say, blurring one's sex life with shopping down at the local mall. The fact that both activities should be occurring under a condition of consent does not blur anything. It's very clear to me. And once again, with respect to the word fascism, many of the symptoms and traits of fascism described do indeed exist under fascist regimes, but they're not exclusive to fascism. With one exception, where Stephen has included the term, quote, ownership and control of private property as the means of economic production, end quote. But ownership of the means of production is called communism or socialism. Control of the means of private production is the distinguishing characteristic of fascism from other systems that lead to tyranny. They're all, they're all just as bad. 
And of course, fascism, like all totalitarian ideologies, sits on the left of the political spectrum, along with its ideological counterparts of communism, socialism, and other state-controlled political, social, and economic environments. Frank G. writes, I don't think there is a moral dimension to capitalism. My view is that capitalism arises automatically in a free enterprise environment. Then he gives an example of John, who's pretty handy at shoemaking. He, he finds he can make shoes that are as comfortable and serviceable as any he can buy or better. He decides to try selling them and finds out he can do this too and earn more than his current employer pays him. So he launches onto a successful career as a shoemaker, risks his own savings to buy the machines he needs to scale up production quantities. By the dictionary definition, he's now a capitalist. By my preferred definition, John is a real capitalist if he does all the above and decides to hire his neighbor to do the low-skill, low-wage job of cutting out, while he, John, does the skilled work of tweaking and laying out the patterns that improve the product. He's now what's popularly called a capitalist because he has engineering, manufacturing, and marketing functions, employs others, has a factory, etc. You're shaking your head, Robert. Well, it's a common misconception, yeah. uh, confusing businessmen with capitalists. Well, they don't necessarily have to be yeah. the same. And then he, he wrote on the love of money, please persuade me this is not true. And he says, well, I suppose, come to think of it, I believe the insatiable desire for money has negative moral tone. I don't think anybody's talking about insatiable desire for money. That always reminds me of Scrooge McDuck. <laughs> <laughs> he says, there are people like George Soros who will openly and cheerfully admit that he simply loves money and wants more. You've got me thinking. Clank, grind. <laughs> Cheers, Frank. Well, hello, Frank. I can hear the clanking and grinding. Your comment that capitalism arises automatically in a free enterprise environment is kind of on the mark, and it's a good way of looking at it. We've often on past broadcasts described capitalism as that condition which arises when people are free to trade with each other on a rational basis. In fact, the free enterprise environment you described, which is free of coercion by criminals or government, is the condition of, of capitalism. It's the economic dimension of it. Now, with respect to the example of John the Shoemaker, I can see some confusion, namely in the difference between capitalists and capitalism. Let's, let's distinguish capitalism. A capitalist, as opposed to a businessman, trades and deals most in capital and property, not in direct production. And one person can be many things, and this is, the, this is where the confusion comes in, or serve many functions, some of them being capitalist and some of them not so. A banker is a capitalist because he lends money, capital, to others for a price. A landlord is a capitalist because he rents property. A shareholder of any given stock is a capitalist because he holds stocks or bonds. Same with the savings. So, so it has to be capital. Machinery and factories could also be regarded as such. Then he wrote back and he said, Our disagreement is based on definitions. My definition of a capitalist was from some long-forgotten source that said capitalism is the use of private resources to create saleable public goods or services, etc., and then he cites some other dictionaries. But he says, on the moral aspect, I think you're right. Pondering this, I soon realized that a capitalist system depends, for instance, on honesty. Okay, you win. <laughs> Good work. Cheers, Frank. There's really nothing wrong with these slightly varying definitions of capitalists. And in general conversation, you know, hard distinctions like the ones necessary with the term capitalism are not as essential to the larger freedom debate. Although the dictionary definition you've cited on capitalism is an accurate one, as far as it goes, it, the problem is it's far from the whole story. 
all of the economic elements of the said described capitalism still rest on a moral code. A free market means free from coercion, either by criminals or government, but that's not part of the dictionary definition. Private decision rather than state control, quote-unquote, represents a profound moral principle, the principle of individual rights, which brings me to the definition of capitalism as, as defined by Ayn Rand, capitalism's arch defender, and she adds points rarely, if ever, published in dictionaries. Quote, capitalism is a social system based on the recognition of individual rights, including property rights, in which all property is privately owned. The moral justification of capitalism does not lie in the claim that it represents the best way to achieve the common good, even though it is true that capitalism does. But that's merely a secondary consequence. The moral justification of capitalism lies that it's the only system consonant with man's rational nature, that it protects man qua man, that its ruling principle is justice, end quote. And of course, as we noted last week, she wrote a whole book just to complete the definition of what capitalism was about. Uh, and amazingly, I don't believe I ever recall, you know, repeating or using the obvious observation that a capitalist system depends on honesty. We don't use that word as much because we're always describing the system and not the, uh, you know, the incentive behind it, what is necessary. I, I like that. I like that. Yeah. As a matter of fact, it is an essential component Absolutely. of living in a free society and, and living in a capitalistic one. If you are conducting business fraudulently, that has to be stopped. Absolutely. And, and that's the role of government. So, um, yeah, trust, I think, and honesty are definitely parts of the whole picture. Yeah, usually when we talk about honest, we get we get into we highlight issues like contracts and consent and agreements, which all rely on honesty and the enforcement of that honesty. But they're secondary issues to the basic honesty issue. But in changing your view on the moral dimension of capitalism, Frank, your closing comment, quote unquote, okay, you win. <laughs> While complimentary and very much accepted as such, it still left me a bit uneasy. You'd think I'd leave this one alone, wouldn't you? <laughs> Accept your win and go home. <laughs> <laughs> but it's not about the kind of winning that comes with losing. Here's my concern. I never looked at any of our discussions and debates with those we may, may have a disagreement with in terms of win-lose propositions, not the debate itself. In any search for truth, the discovery of that truth is a win. In terms of Frank's discovery, we're both winners. That's how I look at it. We both now see the same truth. Even if none of those with whom I have been having these discussions ever agree with my point of view, I don't feel a loss on my part. To the extent that our viewpoint is the one that best ref reflects the reality of a given situation or issue, then those who disagree with it are the losers, hands down. So remember, when it comes to reality and recognizing reality, it's always a win-win, especially every time you tune in to Just Right each Thursday as we continue our weekly journey in the right direction. Be sure to be a winner again next week by joining us in the next chapter of our journey. Until then, you know what to do. Think right, act right, be right, stay right, do right, and be right back here. We'll see you then. Fade into color, color into black and white. The most important part of travel is when you come home, because that's when you see your country with new eyes. I was amazed to realize that we are, we are the only country that, that tells the rest of the world on a nearly constant basis that we are the greatest country on earth. And that 
but it's a little fucking obnoxious. <laughs> and I know it's obnoxious. Because if you were in an office and there was someone there who came in every day and said, I'm the greatest fucker here! <laughs> and you sniffling shits would die without me! <laughs> I can guarantee by the end of the week, you'd have killed him. <laughs> and eaten him just to try to possess his power. 